1: Welcome to Tales Tales to Terrify.
2: Good evening, Children of the Night. I just wrapped up Nick Cutter's The Deep. I had read his The Troop and really enjoyed it. The Troop does have some themes that give it a real Lord of the Flies feel that I enjoyed. The Deep shares some thematic elements with John Carpenter's The Thing, and I think you might find that enjoyable. The ending of the story is appropriate to the genre, which is always important. If I could tack on one other comparison, it'd have to be Stephen King's Under the Dome. Under the Dome had an enormous cast of characters, which The Deep does not. But there are some elements to the story that allude to something greater, some of which gets explained to the audience and other parts that we are left guessing. Check this one out. Our story for the evening comes from Gary A. Bronbeck. He's a prolific author who writes mysteries, thrillers, science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and mainstream literature. He is the author of 19 books. His fiction has been translated into Japanese, French, Italian, Russian, and German. Nearly 200 of his short stories have appeared in various publications. Some of his most popular stories are mysteries that have appeared in the Cat Crimes Anthology series. He was born in Newark, Ohio, and as an aside, so was I. This city that serves as the model for the fictitious Cedar Hill in many of his stories. The Cedar Hill stories are collected in Graveyard People and Home Before Dark. His fiction has received several awards, including the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in Short Fiction in 2003 for Duty and 2005 for We Now Pause for Station Identification. His collection, Destinations Unknown, won a Stoker in 2006. His novella, Kiss of the Mudman, received the International Horror Guild Award for Long Fiction in 2005. As an editor, Gary completed the latest installment of the Masks Anthology series created by Jerry Williamson, Masks 5, after Jerry became too ill to continue. He also served a term as president of the Horror Writers Association. He is married to Lucy Snyder, a science fiction and fantasy writer, and they reside together in Columbus, Ohio. As another aside, I used to live there too. Gary is an adjunct professor at Seton Hill University, Pennsylvania, where he teaches in an innovative master's degree program in writing popular fiction. His nonfiction writing book, Fear in a Handful of Dust, Horror as a Way of Life, has been used as a text by several college writing classes. Gary has taught writing seminars and workshops around the country on topics such as short story writing, characterization, and dialogue. And now we will hear Gary Bronbeck's The Great Pity.
3: All those bodies which compose the mighty frame of the world have not any substance without a mind, that their being is to be perceived or known. George Berkeley, 1685-1753 to 1753. The Great Pity will occur before long. Those who gave will be obliged to take, naked, starving, was standing cold and thirst michel de Nostradam. chalk gripped in each hand later of course no one is watching when the little girl stumbles out of the burning house and towards the middle of the street a piece of chalk gripped in each hand one piece is white the other is red She finds a section of the asphalt that is without potholes or cracks and kneels down, brushing away some of the dirt and the pebbles so that the surface is as smooth and clear as it can possibly be. She looks at the house she had just left, but if she is thinking anything, remembering anything, hoping for or regretting anything, it cannot be seen on her face. The flames that were only a second ago causing the house to screech like some prehistoric beast being pulled into a pit of tar freeze in place, so very still looking almost artificial. Even what remains of the roof pauses in the midst of buckling, snapping, and collapsing inward. When the flames resume their feast, less than one-tenth of a second will have passed. But, for now, time, place, here and now, back then, all of them are no longer fixed in place. This is how she wants it, this little girl. For now, at least. Leaning forward, she begins drawing a long, unbroken, often curving line with the white chalk until the basic shape of a fallen body, a woman in her late twenties, yes, that's it, is complete. Switching hands, she begins to add the blood, a splash near the stomach, a trickle down one leg, a massive fountain on the left side of her head, leaning her own head to one side so as to afford a different, if not better, view. The little girl smiles at the parallax effect achieved by this slight change of vantage point. She scoots to the side, brushes away some more dirt and pebbles, and begins working on the shape of the second body. A young boy, this one, with a club foot and a jagged maw where the lower portion of his face used to be. It's a good thing the sticks of chalk are brand new. She has so many figures to outline. So much red to splash, splatter, and spray about. It's nice that no one is watching the house now, not like before. She doesn't like when people look, when people watch, when people stare. The lookers, the watchers, the staring ones, they never say anything but, oh, the things they think, the things they do think. Luckily for us, she does not choose to look up from her task, not that she would see us, but still, it's best we remain as we are. 1. And by extension, not just anyone can be one who only looks. If the person being observed looks back, the observer becomes the one who is being looked at, and the guise of safety, of an action unnoticed and therefore secret and therefore somewhat holy, is shattered. The moment is unalterably affected. Still, one cannot help wonder, if the being at whom one stares is something akin to a ghost, a spirit or phantom, does the moment, and by extension the observer, remain unaffected? It will be important for us to remember this as we turn our attention to the moment at hand, the moment that is being sculpted from nothingness into a lifelike shape, the moment that does not know it's being observed from a safe vantage point. In doing so, like the sculptor confronting the virgin marble or clay, or a child who will soon be drawing chalk figures on the street, we will use our words and trust they will speak accurately to who, or whatever, is watching and listening. Should we fail in this task, we risk conjuring deaf idols, if we take too literally our descriptions of the sculpted scenes, for not just anyone can be one who only looks. If the person being observed looks back, the observer becomes the one who is being looked at. 2. Geometric Exactness It is necessary, in so much as anything can said to be necessary— That we establish certain precincts, particular margins, commonplace boundaries before we go any further. Let us begin with the when of it, right now, in the graceful flow of the present. Now, the where of it, we are hidden here, in the blank space between words, paragraphs, pages, we are only now, right now, here in this story, here on this page, here in this sentence. And from this place of safety we watch as a young man, not the little girl with the chalk in her hands. She hasn't shown herself yet, and with good reason. A young man in his early twenties walks down a street that looks like a lot of other streets, passing houses that look very much like all the other houses. We don't know this young man's name. No one living on the street knows his name. And so, as we observe from our unnoticed and therefore holy vantage point, his identity is of no consequence what is of consequence what we absolutely must concern ourselves with is the bouquet of flowers he carries in his left hand the hand that is at the moment facing the house he is passing watch carefully the young man's face is tight and red there are streaks down both of his redden cheeks but if there are any tears they have already dried is he angry hurt broken-hearted perhaps it doesn't matter What matters is that he is coming to a stop in front of one of the houses, his entire body shuddering from the anger or broken-heartedness. He closes his eyes, pulls in a slow, deep breath that steadies him, and, bringing to bear a surprising amount of force, tosses the bouquet aside. They land, still neatly wrapped in green tissue paper, on the second of the three stone steps that lead up the front porch. The young man wipes his eyes, pulls in another deep breath, nods to himself perhaps having made a decision to which we are not privy, and walks away. His part played, his purpose served, and leaves our story while we remain here, in front of the house, looking at the bouquet of flowers. We sense more than realize there is something odd about this image. We squint, blink, and stare. It takes a few moments, but at last it becomes so obvious that we momentarily feel foolish. There's a certain almost geometric exactness to the position in which the bouquet is landed moving closer we decide that yes yes definitely they do look as if they were placed in that position on the second step on purpose don't they absolutely and with this image of the bouquet firmly set in our memory we can move forward a few hours unnoticed undifferentiated shape and shadowless here on this page at this paragraph in this book 3. The Company and Friendship of Shadows The first person to notice the flowers is 58-year-old Eugene, Jean to my buddies, Benson, a man who discovered only this morning that the cancer was not totally removed along with his prostate, that some of it, like an undetected fragrance, has found a new and metastasized home in his liver, his lungs, and very soon, his brain. Jean, as we now know him, for what person would refuse the company and friendship of Shadows at a time such as this, has been walking for hours, forcing himself to notice all the things he'd taken for granted during his 31 years working the graveyard shift at Miller Tool and Dye. His attention and skill focused not on the world beyond the factory cell, but instead on metal-forming rolls, lathe bits, milling cutters, and form tools. He wonders why he never married, never raised a family. Never did any of the thousands of things, be they special or every day, that mark the passing moments of one's life so that some sort of memory will live on. He stops when he sees the bouquet on the second step of the house he was just about to pass, and for a minute he simply stares, wondering who would leave such a thing, and why. Then remembers stories he's heard on the radio or read in the paper, or seen on the evening news, stories about people, family, friends, even strangers who assemble at the site of some domestic tragedy to leave gifts, cards, pictures drawn in crayon by children, toys, flowers, trinkets, handwritten notes, photos that mean nothing to anyone except the one who kneels down, makes the sign of the cross, and tearfully places it beside any of the dozens of motif candles arranged in odd, geometrically exact rows, as if the positioning somehow ensures that the iridescent light will continue to burn, as if the act of placing these things at the site of a domestic tragedy somehow lifts the burden of accountability from the shoulders of the neighbors and friends who gather to sing church hymns, weep openly, and crane their necks to offer prayers both silent and shrill to a sky where no one looks down, all the time trying to convince themselves and others that they didn't know or didn't want to interfere with other people's business. Gene has always been secretly sickened by such stories. What the hell good does any physical item do for a person who's now dead? Why amplify the suffering of that person unless it's simply a way to draw attention to yourself? It makes no sense to him. But now, for some reason, he finds himself unable to look or walk away from the flowers. He feels something on his face, and reaches up to discover he's begun to weep. But whether it's for the person who died or for himself, he can't decide. Then he does something that surprises even him. He reaches into his back pocket and removes his wallet, flipping through the credit cards in their clear plastic compartments, cards he doesn't have to worry about paying off now, until he comes to the sight of a photograph he's carried with him for God only knows how many years. The photo that came with the wallet. It's of a little girl, maybe six years old. She smiles at the camera that has captured her image on a perfect autumn day. She's the little girl every married couple wants. Had the photo been of a little boy, he would have been the little boy every married couple wants. With his thumb, Jean touches the cheek of the little girl, realizing that her face has faded over the years. He can make out her strawberry blonde hair, her light windbreaker, part of her smile and her left eye. He tries to remember what she looked like when she was new. He tries to remember why he purchased a particular wallet, and lastly, He wonders why he did not remove the photo of the little girl, who never was. Slipping it from its protective sleeve, he stares at her discolored and washed-out face, feeling a rush of grief he's not experienced since the death of his parents. He pulls in a slow, deep breath that steadies him, not unlike the nameless young man in the moment before he tossed the bouquet, then walks over to the house, kneels before the second step, and gently places the picture of the little girl among the roses in baby's breath taking a moment to make certain that she's looking out at those who may pass by once Jean himself has left. We float, first this way, then that, whispering around him, pondering the anomalous tableau. Why is he doing this, making a gesture that he's always thought to be ineffectual, offensive, and hypocritical? We consider entering Eugene Benson's mind to find the answer, but then he speaks, something in the back of his voice sounding of corroded nails being wrenched from rotted wood. May as well give you a name while I'm at it, huh? I always kind of thought that Lee was a really pretty name. L-E-I-G-H. Not L-E-E, so... Why don't we call you Lee, then? I bet whatever your real name is, you're probably all grown up now with your family of your own. But maybe you still model for photos that'll go inside of wallets and picture frames and... Whatever else it is that they put them kinds of pictures in these days. Oh, hon, you ought to see some of the things these people have come up with. They got these picture frames now. They're electronic. You can hook them up to a computer and load it with hundreds of pictures. Then you turn it on and it'll change pictures every five minutes or so. I guess how long it shows any one picture is something that you have to decide for yourself. I wish I'd known how to use a computer. Maybe I could have got on the internet and found more pictures of you and... The words trail off, lay fallen at his feet. We drift nearer, closer now than the space between his breaths and murmur. And what? Create a daughter who never existed? Not in the same sense that I exist, says Jean. I mean, I know that you exist, you're right here in the picture, but that's where it sort of ends between you and me, isn't it? You look like the daughter I wish I had had, but never did. So what's wrong with wanting to watch her grow up, even if it's just in pictures that I find out there in other wallets, other frames? Maybe that's how she stays in touch with me, popping up in them places like that so I can see that she still has that great smile and her hair has that terrific shine and her skin still has that... that that bloom, just like her mother's, and... The words do not fall at his feet this time. Instead, his left hand snaps up to cover his mouth and trap the rest of them within as he turns quickly away from the pictures and the flowers. Whatever he was about to say will remain unspoken. We can see as much in his eyes, eyes no longer narrowed against the sight of the surrounding world, eyes that are now wide and glistening at the corners and staring at something we are forbidden to look at from this place where we hide, something only he can see perhaps a thing of heartbreak or madness, quiet fury or ravenous regret, born from a loneliness to whispers of a life misspent, that any and all chances to find something of joy or meaning or permanence have long since passed by, unrecognized, untaken, now unattainable. And as we try to imagine what physical shape this thing only gene can see might assume, that is, if it were sentient enough to give itself form, Questions must be posed. Have you ever passed by an ill-kept house where those inside are screeching profanities at one another and notice there's no fence to block your view of the backyard? And did you, despite yourself, look to see the brown, brittle grass covered in many places by broken toys and empty beer cans? Looking a bit longer, did you catch sight of the crumbling dog house back there? And did you observe the dog itself? a too-thin, shuddering, frightened, whimpering vaudeville of what it should be. Rumi eyes focused on you, pleading for a few moments of kindness, because kindness does not gift with scabs and scars crisscrossing the body. Kindness does not leave the unwashed bowls empty for days on end until you are so hungry and so thirsty it takes all of your strength to simply lift up your head and lap at the tepid, dirty liquid or nibble at the mashed and moldy heap. It does not rip away chunks of fur, leaving these raw, glistening red patches of slowly healing flesh. It does not swing the belt that leaves one eye forever blinded. Kindness does not kick the frail bones and laugh at the sound of their breaking, does not allow those broken bones to remain unmended. It does not laugh at you when you try to fetch a toy but cannot. The deformities left by the broken bones have shortened one leg and rendered useless another. Kindness does none of these things, and kindness, even a moment's kindness, is all it asks of you. But as you begin to step closer you see that the dog is not chained to a pole or the front of the doghouse. There is nothing weighing it down or forcing it to stay put. And at that moment, safe and unobserved by the screeching people in the ill-capped house, did you wonder why the dog, seemingly of its own free will,
1: remains
3: there? where all it knows, or ever will know, is mockery, starvation, abuse, and loneliness. Have you ever watched the shabby vagrants who gather outside the bus station on Friday night? The way each one tries to make him or herself a bit more presentable before approaching the sore and weary travelers. Have you watched as they put on their best smile, the only one they possess? The one that is kept in cold storage and taken out only to ask for a bit of kindness, a little spare change. Have you noticed how these smiles, some straight and bright, others displaying teeth that are crooked and broken and yellowed, jutting up from blackened gums, always show for an instant, just a flash, blink and you'll miss it, an echo of the person they used to be. And in taking note of this, have you ever wanted to approach one of them, especially the worn-out women with bruised faces who hold the hands of small, shivering children? Have you ever wanted to touch their cheek and whisper something of genuine comfort? Words that will still have value long after the pocket change you drop into their grateful hands has been spent on liquor, or drugs, or food for the little ones. Something like, Anytime you feel lost, call my name, and I'll carry you back across to the place where you can remember what it felt like to still have human dignity. Have you ever walked into a room full of people and immediately sensed that something important, maybe ugly, possibly profound, has just occurred. And have you then forced a smile onto your face as you make the rounds, trying to discern what has happened by the way the others behave, the tones of their voices, the manner in which they carry themselves, avoiding too much eye contact, but there you are, digging for clues like some second-rate detective just so you can discover what occurred while you were out of the room. Have you ever found yourself weeping for no reason, be it at the office or at home, or when you find yourself stuck in traffic with nothing to do but sit there and wait for everything to start moving again? And while you wait, your mind, without your knowledge or assistance, scrounges through the place where you stored memories of pain, regret sadness, despair, guilt, and digs deep until it finds a particularly terrible memory. But instead of throwing that memory into your mind, it sends only the feelings that you experienced at that moment, the ones you hoped you would never experience again. And have you ever wondered about the purpose of pain? And have you ever, in dreams never spoken of, drank the sky from a silver chalice, reigning over a kingdom where there is no more sorrow or hunger or broken spirits? And have you ever felt your heart skip a beat at the sound of a child's scream because, just for a moment, you can't tell if it's a scream of joy meant to travel the world or if it's a scream of absolute terror because someone is doing something terrible to the child,
1: only you can't see where it came from? And have you ever
3: railed against the existence of God? Or why it is that movies with happy endings always leave you cold and resentful and wishing you could reach into the film and strangle all the actors? Have you ever wondered why it is that those who for some reason love you are always forgiving your mistakes, no matter how cruel? And in the end, have you ever asked anyone say a little girl drawing chalk outlines on the street if anything you do or say or hope for or strive toward or dream or regret ultimately matters or is it all just some protracted contemptuous obscene delusion Shh. there there it's not necessary if you'd have an answer but we did have to ask if there's enough pain if there's enough grief If there is sufficient depression and hopelessness, and if they are focused intensely enough, with an adequate amount of belief, on a single point and at a single subject, much as the unseen observer watches from his, her, their place of safety, how could you not accept the idea that something that was not suddenly is? We leave Eugene Benson, for just a few moments, rising on the breeze towards an upstairs window, Looking in, we see that there's no furniture in the room. Dust covers the badly scruffed hardwood floor, but as we continue watching, the dust is being disturbed by something unseen. It swirls in the air like snowflakes, until it all twists and turns towards the same spot in the middle of the empty room. Here it becomes a small funnel cloud that, from its behavior, is trying to drill through the floor. Instead, and it takes us a few seconds to realize this, is trying to pull something up through the floorboards. And, soon enough, we see the semi-gelatinous substance that is leaking upward from the cracks between the boards. At first it looks like mud left on the hillside after rain, but as the funnel continues to churn and more of the mud leaks upward, it takes on the color and consistency of raw liver, all of it combining to form something like a cocoon made of spoiled pork. There's a soft snapping noise from inside the cocoon and it begins to split apart on one side, a mouth disgorging something unpleasant, and a series of wet, tearing sounds. A small, slick knot pushes outward. After a few more moments, the knot begins to split apart, fingers uncoiling, flexing, and then clawing at the sides of the cocoon, ripping away chunks of meat that fall to the floor with heavy, splattering sounds. We turn away from the window and drift back down to Jean, who is now looking across the street where a middle-aged woman has been watching him for who knows how long, her narrowed eyes filled with suspicion. Jean suddenly feels embarrassed, foolish, insufficient, and inept. So he glances once more at the flowers in the picture of Lee and whispers a farewell before walking on, eventually going back to his house where he will order a pizza for dinner watch the DVD of his favorite movie, The Shootist, the one where John Wayne plays an ex-gunfighter dying of cancer, and when it's over, Jean will smile at the television, reach over to the small table beside his chair, pick up the gun, shove it in his mouth, and squeeze the trigger. It will be ten days before any of the neighbors notice the stench in the air, twelve days before any of his friends become worried enough to check on him. Interlude still life's in white and red with nearly all the figures completed there will be twenty-seven once she's finished with them and the little girl stops with the red chalk now worn down nearly to a nub held tightly in her grip her brow furrows creating wrinkles in her face and on her forehead that look deep as scars momentarily ageing her by decades she stands and turns in the direction of the first figure now several yards down the road Her glance tracks from left to right, examining all of the chalk outlines, until she is looking down at this final form at her feet. She considers something. What, we cannot tell. Nods her head and skips a few feet away from this final figure. Looking down the gallery of her chalk ghosts, the little girl raises one arm, pointing straight out, reshaping her hand into an imaginary gun that consists of a thumb and index finger. Bang! Bang! her flesh becomes smooth once again, no longer marked by aging scars. She's only a little girl, holding nubs of chalk in each hand. She kneels down and begins drawing a new figure, different from the rest. This one, a man in his late thirties. Yes, that's it, that's exactly right. Is given much more detail than any of the others. He has a recognizable face, a knowing expression, he has clothes, work boots, khaki pants, a t-shirt. A denim jacket, a work cap, all of them stained by machine grease from a factory floor. He is standing, full of purpose. He begins to move with confident steps, not too fast, not too slow, just enough that one can take a look at him and know that he will not be deterred from his destination or his task. The little girl smiles at him. He smiles back at her. Shouldn't I be carrying something? He asks. The little girl nods her head. A few moments later, he is holding something sleek. Hold on, says the little girl. I gotta finish something on the last person. Man or woman. Huh? Oh, geez, I don't know, she says. Make it a mother holding her newborn baby. The little girl considers this for a moment. I'll have to draw it over again. You'll have to wait. That will not be a problem. Good. It's an impressive fire, by the way, he says. Uh Uh-huh. It would certainly make me want to come outside and watch. Well, they started it, she said. Yes, that they did. Hey, Lee. What? Who am I? Huh? Give me a name. Tell me the story of my life, I don't care how much of it's left or what I never had to begin with. Just tell me. Tell me about me, he said. Like they told me about me? Something like that, yeah. Please? That's fair. Okay, let me... Let me think, she said. Will it be a happy story or a sad one? I don't know yet. Just wait a second. Take your time, he said. Make it a good story, this story of my life. 4. A Terrible Thing We turn our attention to the middle-aged woman across the street. She wears a shabby housecoat and even shabbier slippers but this does not stop her from coming down off her front porch and crossing over to see what that strange man was up to. She sees the carefully placed flowers. She sees the photo of the little girl whose face is no longer smudged and worn down, but clear and bright. For a moment, the middle-aged woman, Virginia Thompson, Ginny to her friends, recently laid off from the hospital where she worked as a cafeteria cook, stares at the flowers in the photo. The little girl looks Oddly familiar, yet Virginia can't quite place her. It takes her a moment longer to realize what this means, and when the realization hits, she shakes her head, turns around, and heads back to her house where she immediately calls her best friend Arlene and tells her all about it. I mean, it must have been a terrible thing that made them move out in the middle of the night like they did, Jinny said. But that was so long ago, wasn't it? Are you sure it's the same house, Jinny? Why would any of them come back? They don't seem like that's such a smart thing to me, said Arlene. Maybe he was feeling guilty, and that's why he left the flowers in the picture. Oh Arlene, you ought to see what this little girl looked like, poor little thing. Did you call the police? I would call the police, Jenny. If he's still nearby, he might hurt some other little girl. You never know. And what, Arlene, am I supposed to tell the police? That I seen some strange man leaving flowers and a picture on the steps of a house ain't no one lived in for a good two years? Well, you know the names of the folks who used to live in there, right? Hell no, Jenny said. Nobody knows anybody else around here. Everyone minds their own business. Don't sound like it's much of a neighborhood, Arlene said. It ain't. But the house was the right price. If Herb gets laid off from the plant, I don't know how we're going to keep up with the mortgage payments. I really don't. Hey, Jenny? Yeah? I just had an idea about that little girl. By 7.30 that evening, having phoned most of the people either of them could call a genuine friend, Virginia and Arlene stand on the sidewalk, facing the house where the flowers and photograph have now been joined by dozens of small lighted candles, sympathy cards children's toys, hand-drawn pictures, figurines of Christ and the Holy Mother, several rosaries, photographs of other dead or missing children brought there by family members. Word has spread quickly about the vigil. We smile to ourselves as we observe this night watch, somewhat dumbfounded that two or three phone calls have set into action this chain of events. And there are easily two dozen people milling around the front of the house, many of whom we've never met before, a man we have never seen before and will never see again, turns to the woman beside him. I heard Channel 10 might be sending a news van tonight. Really? the woman said. God, if I'd known that, I would have fixed my hair. I can't have people seeing me on television looking like this. Arlene has come prepared and walks around handing everyone a sacramental candle they had been on sale at the religious bookstore downtown, three dozen for ten dollars, and Arlene was not one to pass up a bargain. After everyone has set flame to the wick of their candle, the crowd becomes more orderly, forming a lengthy half-circle in front of the house.
1: What was her name?
3: someone asks. Lee, replies Virginia. I think I heard the man call her Lee when he left her picture. It must have been a terrible thing to weigh on a man's conscience like that. Someone else asked. Do you suppose she suffered much? And like a curved row of falling dominoes or a grade school game of telephone, the speculations begin running down the line and then back again. I hope he didn't beat her to death. That would have been an awful way to die. Think I heard something about a shooting here a couple years ago, but I don't remember the little girl's name. Heard she was strangled with one of her own belts. He tied her hands behind her back while he hung her up by her neck in the closet and just left her to choke to death. No, it was the flu. Bet you anything it was the flu. It's been just terrible this year. Just a terrible thing. The mother poisoned her a little bit each day. Y'all know, like in the movie with the little boy who says he can see dead people got pushed down the basement stairs and it broke her neck? They both held her under water in the tub until she drowned. A divorced thing the mother had custody and the father got drunk as hell and decided if he can't have his kids no more, no one can have to wonder why didn't she scream or cry out for help. Bet she was terrified the whole time. Her last minutes on this earth were horrible. Being beaten like that, poisoned like that, hanged like that strangled like that, raped and stabbed like that, starved like that, pushed down the stairs like that, burned like that, starved like that, hacked up into pieces like that, tortured like that. What makes a person do such horrible things to a child or anyone for that matter, kind of a sick person has thoughts like that anyway? And on and on it goes, until at last they compare notes and decide they have their answers. Second Interlude The Story, in Mosaic, of the Purposeful Man Who is Standing. His name was Frank Thomas, and for as long as he was alive he acted like a man who was always looking back and hoped that something joyful from his past would come running forward, jump up, and piggyback him into the future, happier life. But that's not quite how it went. It happened like this. He finished high school. Did his stint in the military, and then went home to help run the farm. He found a good Christian woman to marry and started a family. His parents retired to Arizona on social security and passed the farm and debts to Frank. Everything seemed to be working out just the way it was supposed to. One night, shortly after his parents moved away, Frank remembered telling his wife as she sat at her piano, "'I feel powerful, Betty. I'm a man.'" Living in the strongest nation in the world, and I got all that goes along with that. A good home, a good wife and family, plenty of good food. If I work for it, I can have just about anything I want. But that's not quite how it went. As his children, Nadine and Rochelle, grew up, he found them to be a burden. It's your fault they grow up so lazy and disrespectful, he told Betty. He did his best to swallow his anger but when it got the best of him, he told them all just exactly what he thought of them. Betty was a fat cow, who didn't have the backbone to stand up to her brood and teach them what was right and proper. Nadine was a slovenly neer to well who, if she didn't get better grades, would grow up to be trailer trash on welfare surrounded by ten screaming children. Rochelle was sickly and Frank let it be known he resented the special care and expense necessary to support her. As far as he was concerned, none of them had any gratitude for the life he provided for them. As a young teenager, Nadine got into drugs and sex. She beat up her mother a couple of times and became useless around the farm. One day she was gone and didn't return. I'm glad she's run off, Frank told Betty. I couldn't love nobody who'd do the things that young girl did. She grew up like that because you are a heartless bastard, Betty told him. It was the only time she'd ever stood up to him. The next day as punishment, Frank sold Betty's precious piano. He enjoyed watching her cry as it was hauled away. She never gave him any lip again. But she did take up with another man. Frank knew that he should have felt hurt, but he didn't. On some level, he was never really willing to admit it to himself. He didn't blame her but he never visited that level too often and so it was easy to ignore. He took to forcing himself on Betty some nights just to see if she'd refuse. She never did. Never much enjoyed having him on top of her either, for that matter, but Frank got to shoot his wad and that was all he cared about. That, and teaching her that there was a price for spreading your legs for another man when you were Frank Thomas's wife. Eventually Betty died in a car accident on her way to one of her disgraceful adulterous meetings, There was some question as to whether or not it was an accident. It seemed that there were no skid marks on the road near the tree she'd hit. Have you noticed if your wife's been depressed lately? One of the investigators asked him. Frank stuffed his resentment deep down inside. So he found himself middle-aged, not as strong as he once was, and without help running the farm. Money was tight. Frank couldn't afford to hire help. Although he'd worked hard all his life and chipped away at his father's debts, he'd never made much of a dent. Rochelle, with her mysterious seizures and the drugs she took for them, couldn't be expected to help out much. The debts piled up. The farm started to show signs of neglect and ruin. Younger debts came along to keep the older debts company. He was forced to sell off half of his property. But he kept the anger and frustration buried deep as the bodies in his front yard. All too soon there wasn't enough farm left to farm. He got a job at the recycling plant, sorting plastic bottles. He was mired in a rancid, soft-drink residue eight hours a day, five days a week. Hank Fenster, who drove a forklift at the plant, befriended Frank. They were relaxing one evening after work at the Echo Hollow Tavern. "'Nothing but a bunch of kids running that plant,' Frank said, draining half his beer. "'Every one of them's got a college degree but no common sense. "'They push us around like we're nothing.' It's like they think I got no pride. i will just take anything off of them. Ain't it the truth, though? Hank asked through a mouthful of beer nuts. I mean, you're just like me, ain't ya? I know I couldn't afford to lose that job. Frank thought about quitting, but with Rochelle's medicine and the doctor bills, the repairs to the plumbing and the antiquated tube and knob wiring in the farmhouse, not to mention the debt his father had been so generous with, he knew Hank was right, like it or not, He was stuck. Frank stared into his empty beer glass and whispered, One day I'm going to take my hunting rifle down to the plant and blow all them snot-nosed kids away. He was kidding when he said it and laughed, but when he stepped out of his car with his hunting rifle a month later to actually do it, Frank was a man possessed by a lifetime of anger denied. In the mail that morning he'd received a letter from his supervisor, explaining how his wages and benefits would have to be cut back or they'd have to let him go. Bastard couldn't even say it to my face, Frank thought. His actions that morning were mechanical and dreamlike at the same time. Before leaving for work, he went to Rochelle's bedroom, kissed her on the forehead, and put a bullet through her skull. Then he headed for work. Frank just arrived for his shift, saw him in the parking lot, tried to reason with him, and finally tried to stop him. After shooting Hank, Frank paused long enough to register the surprise on his friend's face, Surprised that he realized he shared. What the hell have I done? I should go home. No. The bastards had to die. If only to pay for Hank's life. Frank burst through the front entrance of the plant headed for the administrative offices. Alerted by the shots fired in the parking lot, the security guard stood just inside, his pistol drawn. Frank had forgotten about him. Drop it, the guard demanded. If I stop now, Frank thought. Maybe I won't get in too much trouble. Then he focused on the pistol in the guard's hand. It was such a pitiful little thing, not nearly as powerful as his deer rifle. He raised the barrel towards the man and put a hole in his stomach. Frank killed three more people on the way to the administrative of offices. Once he reached his destination, he shot everyone who stood between him and the supervisor's office. The supervisor got special treatment. Frank blew apart both the man's knees, then stood over him and shoved the barrel of the rifle in the man's mouth. Man works his whole life away, Frank spat at the supervisor. He reports to work on time and punches the clock and works without complaint and doesn't ever call in sick no matter how bad he feels. And what does it mean? Can you tell me that, boss man? What does it amount to when little snot-ass college pricks like you make him feel embarrassed by what he is? "'ashamed at his lack of education, "'humiliated because he can only provide his family "'with the things they need and never the things they want. "'The supervisor had wet himself, "'red-faced, and shook his head "'as his eyes filled with tears. "'The tear in the man's eyes made Frank feel good, "'for once in his life he wasn't powerless. "'It ain't so bad when you're in here,' he went on, "'ignoring the supervisor's whimpering. "'It's when you're outside that it bothers you, you know, "'because you're marked.' If you know what I mean. You might be all dressed up at a nice restaurant or buying groceries or out getting the mail and folks, they look at you and know right away what you are. Maybe you've always been and that's a worker, a laborer all your life and they know this because you're marked. The work marks you, the not enough money marks you. The little college shits mark you because they look down their noses at you and make you feel like dirt and soon enough you start acting like dirt. And you wake up one morning and find out that dirt's what you become. And that's what you want, ain't it? The supervisor shook his head as much as he could. Frank pressed the barrel down harder and heard some of the man's teeth crack.
2: Little
1: girl,
3: mumbled the supervisor through what was left of his mouth. What? Frank pulled the barrel from the other man's mouth. What'd you say?
1: The little girl. What little girl? Lee?
3: I don't know no little girl named Lee. The supervisor nodded towards the window.
1: Sure you do. She's right out there in the street. Frank
3: looked over there as well. You mean in front of the house that's burning up? Yes. Do you see her? I see her. She's drawing something with chalk. Bang. said the girl. Frank looked at her, looked at the figure she'd outlined in chalk, looked at the burning house where the flames now stood frozen, and then finally looked at his empty hands. Shouldn't I be carrying something? he asked her. 5. So it was decided. Her name was definitely Lee. She was 11 years old when her father raped her beat her unconscious, and then tied her hands behind her back with duct tape before wrapping an electrical cord around her neck and hanging her in her bedroom closet. Then he killed his wife, but the police still haven't found the body. He threw a bunch of stuff into a trunk of the back seat of his car and hightailed it out of town. It was all such a terrible thing. It's nearly 10 p.m. now, and many of those gathered here are getting tired. Each person extinguishing their sacramental candle, the group begins to disperse, all of them, still thinking about the last horrifying minutes of Lee's life, poor little thing. And maybe those who gathered here will arrive home and hug their children a little tighter than usual, wanting to never let go. And maybe these children will hug back and kiss Mommy or Daddy's cheek and say, I love you too. Virginia says good night to Arline, and the two women go their separate ways. No one has thought to extinguish any of the candles on the steps and porch of poor little Lee's house, Soon enough the scene is deserted, except us, and we move away from the candles and toys and cards, rising towards the upstairs window once again, looking into the empty room. We note that the funnel cloud of dust is gone, as is the meat cocoon, but from somewhere in the shadows we hear a soft but nonetheless distinct sound, that of a child crying. A gust of wind, and beneath us the tissue paper around the flowers flutter backwards, just enough so the small section of it dips into a burning candle beside it. Moments later, the flowers are aflame, and it takes little time at all before all of the candles and toys and cards of sympathy are all burning bright. We look back into the empty room and are startled to see Lee standing a few feet back from the window, staring directly at us. She's trembling, her body covered in a sheen of afterbirth that both catches and reflects the light from the street lamp, making her appear nearly translucent. Her saturated strawberry blonde hair hangs off her scalp, straggling down her bony shoulders, and when she moves closer to the window we see that her skin is the color of a gravestone. The fury in her eyes is unmistakable, and we know she can see us. We are no longer those who can only look. From somewhere down the street we hear the sound of a loud automobile engine. The car reveals itself a few moments later. It is an older model Mustang, a convertible with its roof down. Two teenage boys are sitting on the back of the car, their feet cushioned on the back seat. The driver is alone on the front seat. The car slows, pulling up to park in front of the house. The three teenagers get out, but the driver leaves the engine running. He's carrying something in his right hand. Something red and square and... judging by the way he keeps adjusting his shoulder, rather heavy. So this is it, huh? The house where that little girl was killed? She was raped first is what I heard. Me too. Well, at least some of the shit's already burning. A sloshing sound, drunken words, and we watch in fascination as the driver hoists the gas can up onto his shoulders and then throws it forward. It shatters the downstairs window, splashing a trail behind it that the flames are only too happy to follow. One of the girls in the back seat hops up, pulls something out of her purse and scribbles a word, Fuck Death, on the sidewalk in front of the house. Fuck is written in white chalk. Death is written in red. She throws the chalk aside and joins the others as they run back to the car and, with the sound of squealing tires and the stench of burning rubber, flee the scene. Three minutes later, the house is nearly engulfed in flames. Lea is still standing at the window, staring at us, her eyes beckoning, commanding us to observe what is in her mind and heart. This isn't fair, she thinks. It isn't fair that all of you went away. You were the ones who beat me. You were the ones who drowned me. You starved me. You choked me. You raped and burned and tortured me. You wrote the stories of my life. You gave me life only to kill me
1: over and over again.
3: She is not of the dead, nor is she of the living. She is a thing created wholly out of perception, grief, anger, and belief. She is a small fracture in the structure of the multiverse. She has no identity save for that given to her by the vigil group. Her past, pasts we should say, was also given to her by the vigil group.
1: You gave me life only to kill me and then give me life and then kill me over and over again and it isn't fair. I never knew what it was like to be alive, to run and laugh and fly kites and blow up birthday candles and hold my first puppy and blush after my first kiss. You took that
3: from me and then you went away. The smoke and flames surround her, and at last we hear the sounds of sirens. Lee smiles. I'll show you what it's like, she thinks. You'll know how it feels. I know all of you. I know your children's names.
1: You did this to me. Now it's my turn.
3: The flames do not harm her. She seems to draw strength from them. We cannot move away quickly enough. We must now find another place from which to watch and observe what Lee will do to those who so unfairly did this to her.
1: Now it's my turn.
3: Perhaps we can find refuge on another stage, in another story, in a different book. Somewhere in the white space between words, we can watch safely from there. You gave me life only to kill me over and over again. We whisper goodbye to her. I'll show you what it's like. And it is here that our part in the story comes almost to an end. Should you believe any part of this to be untrue, then perhaps you are one of the people who, one night not so long ago, stood outside an abandoned house holding a lighted sacrament candle and creating a wretched, ugly, painful, and perpetually unfair past for a little girl who did not exist until you gave her a name, gave her death, which was her life, and then gave her life which was her death. We can watch what happens to you, but you will not see us. As for yourself, you can only listen now. Requiem Audio Snuff Files Before each call is replayed, there are these words from a dispatcher. 9-1-1, what is your emergency? House across the street is on fire, someone screaming. There's a fire and it sounds like someone's shooting a gun. Can see him walking through the smoke, sweeping his
1: arms from side to side. Little girl on the street, she's laughing and dancing in circles. The fire's so bad, the whole goddamn thing's collapsing. Ash and ash and sparks everywhere, Jesus Christ. He just killed two little kids, just walked right up to them and shot him in their heads. And now he's heading towards the house next door. Where are the fire trucks? How long does it take to get a fucking ambulance here? The signing girl, she's... Oh, God, she's picking us apart from the little boy's body. She's dancing with it, still shooting. I think it's some sort of semi-automatic, maybe an AK-47 or something like that. Old woman is still alive. She's crawling across the lawn. She looks so bad. Some of the fires are spreading to the other houses, and everybody's running into the street, running around, so much noise. She can't see anything. Bang, bang, bang. Is all I can hear. Oh, God, please don't shoot me. Please don't. Believe something like this could ever happen here. Get some help here, please. He walked right past the little dancing girl. He didn't shoot her. Singing's getting louder, and her laughing is even louder than the gunshots. Help us, help us, help us. People are falling dead in the streets. Goddamn chalk outlines. People's dead bodies are dropping right in these goddamn chalk outlines, and they land just like the outlines are shaped. So much noise. So much gunfire. So much blood, so much screaming. Can't breathe from all the smoke. So much, so much death. Help us! Help us! Help us! How? <coughs> I Can't believe this is happening. Just killed my husband right in front of our house. I
3: can't believe this. Why?
1: We're good people, decent people.
3: We didn't do anything.
1: Why? Do- Two, two little kids on fire, they just bolted into the street and the ambulance ran right over them. Scattered pieces. A hand on my lawn and its fingers are moving, burning. Where's mom? Where is she? We're good people. We didn't do anything to deserve this. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't do anything. Can't imagine what would make someone do this. Can't imagine why. Can't imagine what would make someone.
2: That was Gary Bronbeck's The Great Pity, as read by John Grills. The term Jack of all trades doesn't really apply to John, mostly because he refers to himself as a seven, maybe eight of clubs at best. On top of narrating, John has five novels of his own, including his Crazy Town Mystery series, and has three more novels in the works. Husband, father, technical writer, Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor, and podcaster of his own jiu-jitsu after dark weekly podcast. One of these days, John even thinks he could move up and be a solid nine of diamonds. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.